There's an island off the north coast of Germany called Heligoland. In 1994, off the northwestern coast of that island, a body was discovered, with injuries that suggested foul play. Wearing smart clothes and expensive shoes, he was given the name The Gentleman. But nearly 30 years later, he's still unidentified, and his killers have got away with murder. Welcome to the mysterious case of the Gentleman of Heligoland, one of Europe's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 16, Tall Stories. In episode 15, we pivoted our investigation away from looking for just missing people to looking for exceptionally tall people. Because it's the elephant in the room in this investigation, the height. Everything else, if there is such a thing, is just a standard missing persons case. The big difference is his exceptional height, six foot five or above. So we figured that simply looking for missing people wasn't going to cut the mustard anymore. We needed to focus our search attentions on just exceptionally tall people. And through that investigation, we came across a man called David Charles Lovett, who had appeared in court charged with murder in 1984. He defended himself and was acquitted after two trials but he fitted much of the known physical traits of the gentleman. He was exceptionally tall. He was gaunt. He was an Englishman. At the end of that trial was a broken man. But all that happened a decade before the gentleman is found. And he's not missing. The last picture I saw of him was a happy David Lovett on the steps of the Old Bailey waving to reporters. But it's his height and his appearance and the unusual circumstances that caught our attention. And, of course, the fact that he was an antiques dealer in Bristol, the exact place that the lasts used to weigh the body down had been manufactured. But did he go missing? Or did he just live out the rest of his life as a happy, free man? Is he still alive? That's what we needed to establish. We needed to trace exactly what happened to David Lovett after the trial for the next decade. Did he fall off the radar or did he stay on the radar? Ian and Joe Willis, as always, had been hard at work trying to solve exactly that problem. So it was Joe we needed to turn to to get this resolved. Ian has found an obituary from 2009 of a man called David Charles Lovett. Now that corresponds with the name of the man who was accused of murder. And, and finding an obituary in 2009 is important because it provides clues that we can check on, i.e. the offspring. Uh, so if the man who died and is featured in this obituary is the man who was accused of murder, then he's not the gentleman because he's clearly alive in 2009. So I know Joe. Hello, Joe. Hello, sir. 
has been busy working away through this, uh, using those names of the children just to work out whether it is the man accused of murder or it's a different man. So uh, keen to know, Joe, where your investigations have led you. Well, I don't think I'm going to be very popular, but I'm convinced that um, the man who died, the David Charles Lovett, who died in 2009, is the David Charles Lovett who was acquitted of murder. Uh, absolutely convinced of it. Okay, well, that's great in one sense because you know we do want to knock these people off. So, so we think the 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 giant, the six foot five man, who was in the dock actually died in 2009 yes i'm convinced of it so we know he's not the gentleman now let's explain why you think that and so let's just go through that line by line so in terms of how how you reach that conclusion that'll be interesting well the useful thing was that on the the detailed um obituary that ian found um it did list uh people who were mourning so you know he was the much-loved husband of Caroline, dear father of Jane, Kate, Julian and Laura, and then the loving grandfather of various grandchildren. And, of course, that gave me a lot of leads. Now, we know that our man who was in the docks um, had been married to a lady called um, Carolyn, mm-hmm. and she, she's named in, in the proceedings because Michael Bolt... Um, you know, who David was um, accused of killing, mm-hmm. had at one point had an affair with Carolyn. Mm-hmm. And so her name, and her name was very clear in the newspapers. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not breaking anything here, you know, not be, I'm not being um, impolite. Um, and um, David uh, and Carolyn got married in 1975 in Bath, Avon. Now, she already had um, a child, um, and um, one of those children is named on the obituary. So what we're saying is that one of the uh, one of the children from the original marriage, yes, not to Caroline, but to Caroline, is named on this one of those uh, four. Children. Yes. And then subsequent to that, um, I think, you know, his his life went from strength to strength, really, because, um, you know, because although the marriage to Carolyn had fallen apart, but clearly he carried on having a very good relationship with his stepdaughter. Um, he then did uh, remarry a Caroline. And um, that was in, let me just look, that was in Stroud, Gloucestershire, where, and he, he did die. Um, near Stroud mm-hmm. and he married a lady called Caroline and she already had some children mm-hmm. who are named on the obituary well that's I think to be honest what you've said is really clear uh the chances of four people with the same name being uh mourners for a for a different David Charles Lovett mm-hmm. who just yeah. happened to be born in the year that we think he was born uh that would that's just concrete isn't it in terms of yeah oh it's so statistically improbable that all yeah. those names would be together um i'm just glad that his life went well because he became an auctioneer in his own right mm-hmm. um so maybe he did get some compensation actually because if you remember from the newspaper reports when he was acquitted 
you know, it'd been so traumatic for him and he'd lost so much weight. And he said, you know, I'm seeking compensation. And uh, he did. Uh, I just hope that that's what set him up in good stead to have this um, nice auction, you know, because he died as an auctioneer. Um, well, it's good because he was certainly broken by it and he was he defended himself, couldn't afford any kind of anyone else representing him. He did a really good job of that. And uh, so it sounds like he got his life back together and, and, and that's good. What we are certain about really now is that although he looked a really strong possibility simply because, you know, we're, we're on the hunt for six foot five men now, he was around at the time. He got himself into these difficulties. But it sounds like he was he was alive long after the gentleman was killed. Yes. The only thing is um, that the birth date that's given on his death certificate doesn't quite cohere with the um, the the ages we were given during the trial, because um, the birth the, the birth date given on the death certificate is the twenty fourth of May, nineteen forty one. And, and throughout the trial, it constantly seemed as if he'd been born in 42. There is another little fly in the ointment on that, which I'll talk about in a bit. But uh, so there are some weird things with the dates, but the but dates can be transcribed incorrectly. What is very unlikely to be transcribed into incorrectly is the names of their of the offspring. Absolutely, Ken. Uh, there was, um, I mean, something that Ian had mentioned to me was, you know, there was, you know, that could this death in 2009 possibly be another very sort of uh, celebrated David Charles Lovett, um, who um, was a, um, a very successful chartered accountant. And um, now I'm convinced that, that the chartered accountant is, is alive and well. He'll be glad to know if he's listening. And so I'm, I don't think there's any chance of confusing him with um another David Charles Lovett um, at all. That was just something Ian flagged up and I have checked, double-checked. The only thing is, Ken, I've never been able to find, for sure, our David Charles Lovett's birth uh, certificate. No. It's, no it's it, been... There are some oddities in it. Uh, we could only ever find one. Uh, mm. And, uh, you know, we don't think it's necessarily this one, the, the birth certificate we found. But, yeah, I mean, I'm with you on this. I think... You know, clearly someone we had to, tra uh, to track down, someone we needed to go through all our normal processes to establish whether he just simply disappeared. Doesn't sound like he disappeared. Sounds like he lived, got his life back on track, lived quite quite a long time later, uh, but uh, but died in 2009, long after, 14 years after uh, the gentleman died. So yeah. brilliant. Joe, thanks as always for this. I know you've had your hands full and uh, I'm really, really pleased you've been able to uh, do your work on this because it's kind of got us to a good place in the sense that we can rule that one out, I think. Always a pleasure, Ken. Thanks, Joe. Bye-bye. So, goodbye, David Charles Lovett. Our gentleman of Heligoland is definitely not him. But this giant thing, it feels like a better route. If we can't establish a person of interest is six foot five or above very early on in the process, then we shouldn't spend too much of our time and your time on it. But where do we go from here? We're seemingly at something of a dead end. But that's when fate and our fantastic global community 
helped us out. I received a Facebook message pointing me towards a police case, a truly staggering case on the European mainland, in which a giant featured very prominently, situated in a place far closer to Heligoland than the UK. Our woman on the continent, Magdalena Ruta, immediately got to work on it. Right, so we've just heard from Joe that it's unlikely that David Charles Lovett is our guy, the gentleman of Heligoland, which is a pity because he was a giant and we're interested in giants, which brings us to the next part of this podcast because I'm joined by Magdalena Ruta and I'm joined by Ian and we're going to talk about another giant, but a giant that's not on our side of the channel, but a giant who's on the European side of the channel. And this is a really interesting story. So welcome, Magdalena. Welcome, Ian. Okay. So, Magdalena, over to you, because I know over the course of the last three or four weeks now, you've been digging away at something, and it's time to kind of bring us all up to speed in terms of what you've found. And this is fascinating. Yeah, I'm very happy to share my latest findings. Well, it it all started with a message uh, on Facebook, right, Ken? Yeah, we got an email from a lady called Hilary McLeod. And she said, have you seen this case? And this case was based in Holland and, and Belgium, Benelux. So I thought, well, I'm going to pass this over to Magdalena she'll be able to unearth more on this than I can. So so that's how it all came to be. So thanks, Hilary, for doing that. So what what were you able to discover? Yeah, I, I never heard about the case. So I was like, yeah, that's interesting. And uh, I speak Dutch, so I I can look it up. Uh, it It's an old case. Um, it, uh, it, it's, uh, it's a story that happened in the 80s. And I can tell you that everybody in Belgium knows this story because uh, I found out that is a very, very famous case, one of the most baffling, crazy crime mysteries that ever happened in that country. And it has three different names, depending on which language you're speaking. So this is a hint for our listeners so that they can find some more details online. So for the English-speaking audience, it is the case of the Brabant killers. For the Dutch-speaking audience, it is the case of the Bende van Nijbel. And for French-speaking people, uh, these are Les Tueurs Fou du Brabant Vallon, which means crazy killers of... Uh, uh, French-speaking part of Brabant, uh, Vallon Brabant. And it goes like this. A gang of criminals in the 80s was responsible for a series of violent attacks that mainly occurred in the Belgian province of Brabant between the years uh, 1982 and 1985. To be more precise, from March 1982 to December 1983. And it was not just a couple of attacks. It was 17 of them, if I counted correctly. 
And these were armed robberies in supermarkets, gas stations, restaurants. Uh, these were auto thefts at, at gunpoint. Uh, and then uh, there were two more at the end of uh, 1985. And so there was a gap. And there okay. was a huge gap of 22 months. Okay. This gang stopped abruptly uh, at the end of 1983 uh, in December. And then uh, they continued in 1985. And uh, their attacks, it was something that sends shivers down your spine because they were really ruthless. So ruthless in terms of it might be worth just giving us the context of how many people died in these attacks because these were these were attacks where people were killed. Yes, yes. In most of the attacks, people were killed, and uh, the total of people killed was twenty-eight. Uh, twenty-eight people died, and twenty-two people were injured. But these this includes old people, even like little children or innocent people, people cooperating with uh, with the gang members or running away from the crime scene. Like they were really killing ruthlessly, uh, mercilessly. The, the dramatic thing, the, the reason that's so ruthless, though, is that what they are getting out of these robberies is really quite petty. It's not huge amounts of money. It's vehicles. It, and it just seems their application of force is completely out of proportion to the the remaining quality of their crime, if you see what I mean. It, it does. Is, it yeah. seems peculiar for that reason. Now, but the reason we are interested in this particular case is for a very specific reason, because there's lots of robberies, there are lots of murders, but we have got a particular interest in this one because... Because well, this is, is a giant... Right. <laughs> that, of course, uh, caught our attention because there is a giant, uh, a prominent member of this gang, probably uh, the leader. Um, we cannot say for sure, but uh, it certainly looked like it. And there were three core members of this gang. Uh, they they were called the giant, obviously. Uh, the killer, the most violent of them, and the old man. Okay. And okay. these three men um, uh, basically were like the the, the core uh, of this gang, and uh, they made it Belgium's most notorious unsolved crime spree because uh, no one has ever been convicted of these robberies, not alone sentenced. And a reward of 250,000 euros is still being offered to anyone who can provide information leading to the arrest of uh, the perpetrators. So that's worth just thinking about, because this is a gang of violent criminals who killed 28 people in, in the 80s, including children, including old people, that were never even, no one was even arrested in relation to this particular case and, and taken to court? There were people arrested. Okay. We don't know still who these three people were. Okay, so, and the reason we're, our eyes were particularly drawn to this is because of the presence within this team, this violent team, 
of someone who is always mm. referred to as the giant. Yes. So now if you're in the Netherlands and you are being referred to as a giant or in Belgium, you are a proper giant because everyone's a giant over there, aren't they, really, in terms of in comparison? Well, that's interesting. There, there is a difference between the Netherlands and Belgium. Uh, Dutch true. people are, are um, in... In generally taller than uh, people in Belgium so uh, but you are right like uh, there, there are very many very tall people because uh, the Netherlands uh, is a country with the with the tallest people on average on yes. earth that's true now just to have some context on that though do we know roughly what his height was estimated to be yeah. does it yeah. compare to our man yeah, so, uh, of course, uh, the description of the gang members varied according to different witnesses, which is understandable. Uh, they were often in great shock. They witnessed the attack in different light, different situations from different distances. So, of course, also the drawings created according to the descriptions uh, differ. But... Uh, there are a couple of things that they have in common, and they all describe the giant as a very unusually tall person, at least 195 centimeters, which is close to 6.5. Yeah, right? exactly for our exactly right for what we're interested in. And but more likely, even closer to two meters, which is 6.6. Wow. Right. And but know that he had a slim build very thin legs and it was also quite often mentioned that he had a slight limp so and his face was often covered by a mask or a scarf or it looks like a turtleneck pulled over his mouth and he wore a cap so um it's uh it's difficult to describe how his face actually looked like uh, and it's also uh, it was also for the witnesses difficult to describe how old he was, but um, by the way he but according like by the way he moved, um, the witnesses estimated that he was most probably in his thirties. So this is someone who's in his thirties in the early nineteen eighties. Yes. So, so therefore, again, we project this forward 10 years to the time we're interested in, in relation to the gentleman, he suddenly becomes around the right age for the actual age of the gentleman. Yeah. Now, a yeah. couple, of, couple of things just to pick up on there. Uh, and I'm glad you pointed out his build, because mm -hmm. to be six foot five, six foot six is rare. To be six foot five, six foot six and thin is extremely rare. The other thing that just I just wanted to ask about was this limp, mm -hmm. and the and I'm thinking now about things like Marfans. Ian, you've got experience of somebody you know you know who has Marfans. What do you think about that? I think so, having Marfans would be supported by the fact that this tall young chap maybe displayed a limp, because I know that um, certainly the, the the guy I work with walks quite stooped is finding it quite difficult to move around or to stretch because it affects the power in his muscles and his joints so an intermittent 
limp, I think, would be something that could easily could easily be displayed by somebody with Marfan syndrome, maybe getting worse as they get a bit older. Okay, that's interesting. So was there ever, Magdalena, any pictures? Any 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 because this was probably in the days before there was lots of cameras on the streets and things, but did anybody ever capture any information pictorially that kind of helped them investigate the crime? There is one picture, only one. It was only released by the Belgian police in 2020. Wow. Uh, Belgian detectives appealed uh, for information on the identity of a man in a picture sent to police back in 1986. And the original it, picture was taken in 86. But it's only no, now, it's only now that they've released this to the public as Because they most probably believe that this is the only existing picture of the killer. Oh, sorry, of the giant. Right. It's a, it's a tall man, probably in his 30s, holding an automatic gun. He stands in a forest. Uh, he's um, like a... Very tall, obviously, because you can see the proportions of his body, very long arms, very long torso, an elongated face. And uh, there are, of course, speculations uh, whether this is uh, the giant or not. But uh, I was like, yeah, OK, maybe it is him. Uh, so let's compare this picture to the picture of our gentleman, because we have uh, the the drawings, the facial reconstruction released by the German police um, a couple of years ago. But I know Ken sent that photograph of possibly the giant through to Josefina, our our in-house dentist expert, dental expert, because obviously we we're looking for somebody who had a crossbite. Josefina came back to you, Ken, did she? He did. I mean, she's seen that one picture. She's not had a chance to look at it in great detail. But I said to her, is this a man that could have a crossbite or would you rule that out straight away? And she's normally extremely good at doing that. And she, she came back. ruling stuff out. <laughs> she's very good at that and great that she is. Uh, she had a look at it and said, no, this is a distinct possibility that this man had a crossbite. There are areas within his face of non-uniformity so his face is not is not parallel symmetrical thank you uh magdalena for correcting me in you in your second language in my first language that that's (laughs) embarrassing but no his face is not symmetrical and one of his ears is significantly lower than the other ear yeah that is correct which kind of implies that something's going on with the position of the jaw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, that that's encouraging. Well, I had these two pictures, this picture of the, the alleged giant released by the Belgian police in 2020. And then I en- uh, then I enlarged uh, the face of this uh, of, of this person and put it side by side uh, with the, the with the facial reconstruction of, uh, of our gentleman. And uh, from my computer screen, there were two faces staring back at me, and they are spookily similar. Wow. 
So that, that, and then I immediately sent it to all of you. We decided that we have to start digging much deeper into this. And we do, because there are a number of reasons why this is potentially relevant. Firstly, one of the things I've always thought is why did the man who we know as the gentleman Heligoland never get reported? Why was he never on any missing persons list? Why was he never reported by any family member as being missing? Because he's not. Now, one of the explanations for that is, well, maybe this was something, this was a person who was living in a very, in, in a world, a murky, maybe violence, maybe criminal environment. Off the grid. Uh, off the, off grid. the grid. People don't get reported generally to the police from those circumstances. So the the gentleman being a criminal has always been in my mind as, to, as a potential uh, scenario. Now, Magdalena, you live on that side of the channel. What can you tell us about you know, if someone was to disappear into the sea around those kind of areas, Antwerp and the Brabant kind of area, Belgium? I mean, that suggests he may well end up close to Heligoland anyway, I guess. You are spot on, Ken. Like, uh, if you if you throw something into the sea off the coast of Belgium off, uh, or the Netherlands, it will most probably end up on the islands in the North Sea, and including Heligoland. And uh, the sea currents will carry it in a northeasterly direction. Um, I, I actually came back today from spending a long weekend on Tesla, one of these islands. Yeah. And, uh, there is a funny thing that I, I discovered, that uh, the coast of this island is... Uh, famous for the fact that sea washes up a lot of things that fall into the English Channel and its surroundings. So uh, the the islanders even have a name for it. <laughs> it's called Yutere, uh, and that means uh, looking for things washed up on the beach. <laughs> right, valuable things. But yeah. uh, it's, they have a strong proof that uh, almost anything you throw into the sea. Um, in the English Channel or off the coast of Belgium or the Netherlands, it will most probably end up like passing by these islands or uh, being washed up on the shores of these islands. That's all backed up by that work we did on on the tides. I mean, we exactly. we know that if someone could have jumped off a bridge on the east coast of England, they would tr travel south and they eventually hit that and 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 then head up northeast. We're just going in much uh, much later on on that on that transit. If you remember as well, we we were told when we were looking at the guy that we were trying to find who'd come off the uh, cross channel ferry that there'd been a Polish guy fallen off a cross channel ferry and his backpack had washed up on Heligoland. Correct. Just Correct. to prove that that's exactly where the currents take. Going in off Antwerp. I mean, you're really just doing the last leg of that journey, aren't you? Yes, you yeah. are. It's much, much closer. Now, just one other thing, though, Magdalena, to understand for me, is surely the people, the police in Benelux, in Belgium, have put these two things together. There's a giant found in 1994 down the coast. There's a giant missing the giant who was involved in these crimes went missing. 
No one knows who he is, where he is, who he is. Have they put those two things together before and eradicated that as a possibility? Or what's your thoughts on that? We don't know that. And I don't think so. I mean, I've been, I, I'm not, I won't pretend that I became an expert on, on the case of the Brabant killers uh, just by reading things on the internet. Uh, I've been in touch with people who, who've been like covering this case and investigating it and writing about it for more than 20 years. So, so and are they aware of the gentleman of Heligoland case? No, they were absolutely not aware of the case. Because interestingly, I I, uh, I went online, of course, and I I looked up uh, archives of uh, of uh, uh, Dutch and Belgian media, and uh, I discovered interestingly that the gentleman's case uh, never received uh, any media attention in the Netherlands or in Belgium. I think it was probably because the gentleman appeared to be from England. They didn't consider it relevant. So it got media attention in Germany and also in the UK, but not not in not in Belgium or not uh, not in the Netherlands. So so the case of our gentleman was never really known to the police in Belgium or to the public. Imagine the Belgian police will be uh, all over it now, though. They, they would definitely be wanting to follow that lead up to maybe close their case, which of course is even older than the. Now a gentleman case. The, the giant who's part of the gang seems to go missing in 84, 85, maybe 83 even. Mm -hmm. uh, but the uh, obviously our giant is washed up in 1994, but could have been deposited in 1993. But, you know, one of the things we've learned and all the podcasts that we've done is never assume the police do anything. They never assume that. They, they may not have simply put these two pieces together. So, uh, Magdalena, so how how do we take this forward? I think what we need to do is probably dig a little deeper, maybe get to talk to some people who have been deeply involved in this case. Yeah, yeah, we are we are definitely working on that. Uh, well, let me let me uh, let me say two things. Uh, first, that first thing is that the investigation uh, in Belgium, uh, to put it mildly, was never really. Uh, a, a successful one uh, because uh, the law enforcement agencies hunting the killers made many mistakes during the early years of the investigation, uh, often as a result of rivalries among various authorities. Because Belgium is a small country, but it's basically divided in two parts. One part is speaking French, the other one is speaking is speaking Flemish or Dutch, and uh, the case uh, was uh, somehow like uh, on one side and then given to the other side, and then there was like a parliamentary inquiry into this, and it went all wrong, and there were so many people involved and so many various authorities that it would be a story for maybe two more podcasts, I don't know. But uh, let me just say that uh, it's not crazy to think that there were mistakes made in this investigation. Um, so, But it's not crazy to think that these two cases have never been connected either. So, Can I ask, uh, do you know, Magdalena, is there 
is there DNA evidence or anything like that from from the Brabant killer case? Uh, we are working on that. Probably there is some. There were fingerprints and there was some uh, partial DNA evidence collected uh, because uh, it seems that one of the one of the gang members got injured. So there was some blood left uh, of on uh, in one of the crime scenes. Uh, but uh, I think we should definitely speak uh, with someone who knows answers to all of yeah. this. So and and we do know someone who's worked on it for twenty years, who's a journalist, who we're currently trying to get in contact with to try and come on the podcast and explain a little bit more. That's correct. Perfect. Well, that seems a good place to leave it. So that's been an amazing journey. So we've got a giant, another giant. He's on the European side of the channel. He's a criminal. He's killed a lot of people. He goes to ground. He may be dead. He may be alive. But but certainly. In Belgium, he's never been found and brought to justice for this crime. No, he, he, he's also the right age. He's the right weight. He's the right height. And physically, he could have this crossbite. So there are reasons for us to be intrigued enough about him to dig further. Yeah, definitely. And then also, it's important to say uh, that Belgium is a country where there are large ports and where many people own a ship. So if you would get, uh, if you would like to get rid of a dead body, a relatively simple way uh, would be to take it out to sea on a boat, way down with something and uh, throw it into the water. And the sea currents, which are strong here, uh, will ensure that the body is soon far away from the place where it was thrown into the water. Fascinating. So there's more work to do. So uh, so brilliant. Thanks for that. Let's hear a little bit more if we manage to uh, track down our, our friend who's the journalist. Yeah, I mean, this is just scratching the surface. Well, <laughs> I'm looking forward to digging much deeper. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Thanks, Magdalena. Thanks, Ian. Welcome. That's great. Well done, Magdalena. Brilliant tale. So that's where we are at the end of episode 16. We've closed the door on one giant and we've opened the door on another one, a European giant involved in violent criminal activities just along the coast from Heligoland, much closer than the UK. And violent criminals, well, they often meet violent ends themselves. We also know that the gentleman was wearing clothing that we've all assumed was from the UK, but is available in all the Benelux countries at the time. And there are considerable physical similarities between that picture of the Brabant gang giant and the gentleman of Heligoland. But there's a gap of nearly a decade. Now, he's just killed 28 people. He may have been on the run. He may have been in prison. That is an occupational hazard of being a criminal. But we need to know more. And in the next episode, we get to know a lot more. We talk to the man, the journalist who has spent 20 years covering that story. He knows everything there is to know about the Brabant Killer Gang. But that's for next time. So, until next time, have a good one.
The Mysterious Case of the Gentleman of Heligoland is a copyrighted GSE Media production, written and narrated by Ian Mackay and Ken Davis, and produced by myself, Ken Davis. Thank you.